verses 21 through 28. And as we take a look at that, so far in uh, chapter 16, we've seen sort of this progression of, of Jesus confronting the disciples, then, or confronting the Pharisees, then conf- uh, warning the disciples of listening to their teaching, and then asking the disciples, who do the people say I am? And when the people say that you're one of the prophets, um, that even though they meant it as a compliment, it was ultimately a rejection of Christ as the Messiah. And so we continue to see in Matthew 15, 16, 17, this rejection of Christ as the Messiah. They, they still say he's a good teacher. They love his miracles. They love the things that he does for them. But they're not willing to accept him as their Messiah. Um, and so the people are rejecting him. And then, so then he asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And they give their answer that we believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And so it's like they, they finally get it. And at this point, Jesus immediately begins to teach his disciples about things to come. A glimpse of what's going to take place in the future. Um, and what that means. And he's calling his disciples to a deeper sense of understanding. As we, and that's what we see in Matthew 16, verses 21. Um, I told you last week that the verses would be great if you did a one-to-one with those verses or did a personal study to see what those verses really meant. Um, to pull up out of concordance and, or a study Bible and just sort of dig deeper into those. These would be some good verses also because I don't think I'm going to get anywhere close to being done. Um, but anyway, so Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28, 28. Go ahead and just read that at your table. You can have somebody read it out loud. Um, but go ahead and just read that and then we'll dive into it. I'm sitting there looking at 21, and it reminds me that next Monday, um, Gail's Memorial is having the Martin Luther King prayer breakfast. But next Sunday, Vince, where are you going to be? I'll be 
for a church service at 5 o'clock? And then, and then where are you going to be on Monday? I thought you were going to be in Elgin. Oh, Saturday. Okay. So if anybody's interested in knowing any of those information, whether it be on Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, you can see Vince, and he can give you information, or you can see me, and get information about some of those, those events. We read these verses, and we're so familiar with them that we don't get how shocking these words would have been to, to, been to the disciples. Um, it, I don't know how you can over, overestimate it. Think about, first of all, where he is saying that all this is going to take place. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, for the disciples, they figured that Jerusalem was going to be where the Messiah was going to reign. He was going to rule. He was going to get rid of the Roman and there was going to be a new kingdom that was going to be there. And so Jerusalem had a completely different pers uh, thought process for them in regards to that. And he says, no, guys, that's not the way it's going to be in Jerusalem. They're going to beat me, they're going to put me on trial, and they're going to kill me. And so just that idea alone would just have shocked them. But then he, notice also who he says is going to do this to him. He says that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are going to be the ones who administer the sufferings and who ultimately will kill me. Once again, we understand that. And because we have heard this story and we understand what the scribes and the Pharisees and elders are, we see them wearing black hats and the disciples wearing white hats. It's the bad guys and the good guys. And it's sort of easy to get that, but not the disciples. These were the people that taught them all their lives. These men were revered. They were the ones that, you know, they fully should, should have expected them to accept the Messiah. And so now he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me there. I'm not going to, you know, ascend to the throne. And not only am I going to be killed, I'm going to be killed by the people that you have revered all your life. The ones that have taught you all your life. So you can begin to understand why this was sort of shocking to the disciples. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And so Peter just cannot grasp that. But the interesting thing also that Peter does not grasp, there's no sort of acknowledgement of it. It goes at the last part of verse 21. And be killed, and on the third day be raised. You know, at that point, you might have thought that Peter said, whoa, 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 wait, time out. The third day you're going to be raised? He doesn't even hear that. Instead, he just says, no, this can't happen to you, God. This can't happen to you, Jesus. So he challenges them. And this, the positive thing I like about that is the fact that Peter has a relationship with Jesus 
that he can question, and that he can challenge, that he can debate, that he could question, that he has that kind of freedom to talk freely with Jesus. Um, and again, we see while Peter's response is motivated by his own understanding of the nature of the kingdom. It's motivated by his own understanding of the nature of the Messiah. And the danger is that we do the same thing. We make judgments not based always on what the scripture says, but on our own understanding of the way we think it should be, or the way we think that Christ should be, or we, the way we think the Messiah should be. So anyway, Peter says, Master, you've got to be kidding. God forbid this. This just can't happen. It must not happen. And Jesus turns around to Peter in front of the whole crew. He says, get, be behind, get be behind me, Satan. Now that's a pretty strong rebuke. Um, but there's been other times when Satan has tried to change the direction that Jesus was going. Um, directly or indirectly. And Jesus says, no, that's not my path. No, get thee behind me. Um, and Jesus says, Peter, you're thinking from a human perspective. You're thinking from what you think is reasonable, according to your own interests, not God's interest. And again, here's the problem for us today. If we're not careful, we too can produce a Savior who is a figment of our imagination rather than the Christ of the Bible. We just sort of pick and choose. I thought it was interesting how Joe started out saying, you know, I didn't need the scripture, I didn't need this, I knew how, you know, how it was going to be, and I could solve those problems myself. And I think we sometimes are, have a tendency to do the same type of thing instead of saying, no, Jesus is really Jesus. And then in verse 24 through 28, Jesus connects his unique sufferings and death with a life that he expects disciples to live. Um, and he's setting down a pattern here for living for every Christian. Then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So he sort of sets this pattern for living for every Christian. And he starts off with, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself. Um, never confuse denying oneself with self-denial. Those are two different things. Denying yourself is recognizing there are basically two ways you can run your life. Either on your own, self, or God's way. And when you're denying yourself, you're saying, I'm going to do it God's way. Self-denial is not the denial of things. Warren Worsby, in A Time to Be Renewed, explains it. To deny self does not mean to deny things. It means to give yourself wholly to Christ and share in his shame and in his death. That I am truly connected to Christ. That I have received him and I am now focusing on him, not focusing on myself. Foster wrote that the freedom Jesus gives when we come to him in true self-denial, he grows in submission 
We are free to value people. See, he's saying until we deny ourselves, we're not free to truly value other people. Until we deny ourselves, we're not truly free to value Christ. We can value people. We can value their dreams, their plans. Those things become important to us. We have entered into a new, wonderful, glorious freedom. The freedom to give up our own rights for the good of others. And that's what Christianity is about. It starts with that self-denial. Now think about that in a marriage. Think about that in a work setting. Think about that with your friends. How many times do we have conflicts because they're based on our agenda, they're based on what we want, based on how we want another person to act, react, or change, instead of saying, you know what? It's not about me. What do you need to help you grow? See, for the first time, when we really enter into that self-denial, we can love other people unconditionally. We have given up the right for them to return our love. We can love somebody, and it doesn't matter if they respond, because that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because Christ tells us to deny yourself and follow me. And if Christ demanded a response from every person he loved, he would have never gone to the cross. He would have never gone to the cross. That was an unconditional love For God so loved the world that he gave his only life, that whosoever should believe in him. And so he did miracles. He performed for people. He fed people. He healed people. And many of them, many of them, never acknowledged and accepted him as their Lord and Savior. And yet he continues to love. That's what self-denial does. We can rejoice with their successes. We feel genuine sorrow at their failures. It's little consequence that our plans are frustrated if their plans succeed. We've discovered that it's far better to serve one another than it is to have our own way. Notice also who he says is going to kill him. He says the disciples and the chief priests, he says to the disciples that the chief priests and the scribes are going to kill him. And again, that the reason why is because of their own need to not let go. They could not let go of their own agenda. The scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders could not acknowledge and submit and deny themselves. And he's telling the disciples, this is what you need to do. Jesus also said, take up your cross. In other words, pick it up yourself. He didn't say, grab a hold of a cross and use it for protection. He didn't say, wear it as a piece of jewelry. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But it's more than that. It means that there's a choice. Christ had a choice of going to the cross. Whether he was going to go and die for us or whether he wasn't. And he made that choice. And he's saying for us, you too have a choice. Are you going to pick up the cross? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to accept the trials? Are you going to identify with the shame of the cross and what that means? See, bearing the cross is a voluntary form of sacrificial obedience. It identifies us completely with Jesus Christ. 
And sometimes we use the term, oh, well, it's my cross to bear, and it's those types of things. And we use these comments sometimes sort of flippantly, but we really don't acknowledge the depth of what that really means. See, because whenever we see a cross, it speaks to us of Christ's tenacious determination to do his Father's will. That's, I mean, that's really what it is. Uh, uh, this obedience, this determination to show that kind of love, to be obedient. And he's saying, when you pick up your cross, you're saying the same thing. I am determined to be obedient to the path that Jesus has me on. The cross is about discipline. It's about hard work. It's about obedience and commitment. It isn't easy, but... Every time we do that, it draws us closer to Christ and makes us more Christ-like. Christ-bearing Christians are committed disciples. Calvin Miller wrote in the book, The Taste of Joy, the difference between cross-bearing Christians and Christaholics. And he said that there's a lot of people out there who are Christaholics and not disciples. He said Christaholics seek happiness, disciples dare to discipline themselves and thus enjoy the happiness of their growth. Christaholics are escape, escapists looking for shortcuts to nirvana. Like, uh, like drug addicts, they're trying to bomb out of their depressing world. Um, but disciples are cross-bearers that seek Christ. Um... And I just thought it was interesting that he used those two terms. That a lot of people love to talk about Christ. A lot of people love, and they are looking for the next happiness high. Um, and what, what is it for me? What is Christ going to do for me this Sunday? What is Christ going to do for me this week? And I look at all, watch all the TV programs and send my money and do all those things for, for whatever in order to get some benefit. And two disciples say, No. It's not about what we get. It's about how does it affect others. Um, Christ is the way to the Father, but the way to the Father is not a carnival ride in which we sit and do nothing while we are whisked through various spiritual sensations. And I thought that that was another great illustration that sometimes we just get on this ride and say, okay, now what is Christ going to do? You know, what's the next exciting thing going to happen? Um, and so when trials come into our experience, instead of shaking our fist at God and saying, why did this happen? We recognize that it might be to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ, just as Christ was obedient to God in going to the cross. And we recognize that God's purpose is that we be made just like his son. So whatever it takes to make us like his son when we are disciples is what we're really asking for. And so you begin to see what he's really saying. You know, denying yourself, picking up your cross, is costly. It's costly. It's truly letting go of your own agendas. So even through the difficult trial, because in Hebrews 5.8 it tells us, although he was a son, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through that which he suffered. Um, 
taking up our cross is when we face trials in this life to recognize them as God's plan to shape us, to craft us into the image of Christ. Finally, a disciple of Jesus must follow him. To follow Jesus means that by the power of the Holy Spirit living in me, I imitate his leading. I imitate his leading. That I act according to his example. His life is the pattern for my living of my own. It means I imitate him completely and continuously consecrate myself to him. It means to follow after his desires, to care about his agenda, and to be concerned about his causes. William Hendrickson says this, One follows Christ by trusting in him, walking in his footsteps, obeying his commandments, out of gratitude for salvation through him, and being willing even to suffer in his cause. This is the very heart of Christian discipleship. In essence, all of this is saying self-denial is the heart of Christianity. The hardest part for any of us is to really do an honest heart test. Am I willing to deny myself and follow Christ? And then in verse um, 25 and 26, he starts giving these reasons why we should do that. If self-denial is at the heart of Christianity, these are the reasons you should do it. And he starts by saying, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Remember, Jesus just said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die. It goes directly against everything that you've been expecting, everything that you're hoping for, because not only did you think I was going to make a new kingdom there, you thought you were going to be a part of it. And you are going to be a part of it. But not in the way that you thought. Not in the way that you thought at all. You're going to have to walk the same path that I did. That they're going to persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And in the backdrop of Peter's objections to Jesus' suffering and death, Jesus is saying, Peter, I didn't come to do what was good for me. I didn't come to do what was good for me. I came to do what was necessary for your salvation. That's why he came. And we look at Christ to say, what can he do for me? And he said, I came to do my Father's will, not my will. I didn't come here to be safe. I didn't come here to be secure. I came here to serve and not be served. I've thought about that a lot. Um, and it's an interesting concept because being a pastor for the last 40-some years, close enough, can't math. <laughs> um, when I first went into the ministry, Almost all the churches, a lot of the churches, were run by leaders in the corporate world. You know, they were the elders, they were the board members, they were the ones who would just define and design the leadership structure of the church. 
And at that point, in the 60s and 70s, probably the most popular um, management tool was the Deming method of management. It was quality control and how we were going to develop quality through the Deming method. Um, and it's, it's fascinating how he did what he did in Japan and all the things that took place after World War II. And then after that, we started doing management by objectives. And so churches, you know, we would just shift. And whatever was the new management guru, then we would pick those things and we would run our churches the same way. We would organize, plan, structure, all of that. And it's interesting that the number one leadership book that is out today, the number one leadership books, is on servant leadership. And the church has sort of said, okay, we'll do servant leadership. And yet, the scripture, Jesus Christ, has always said that. That the real leadership is a servant leader. In 1970, I heard that there was only five books that talked about servant leadership. Then a guy named Robert Greenliff wrote a book on servant leadership, and now there are over 5,000 titles on Amazon on the, on the aspect of servant leadership. 5,000 since 1970. Um, and I, I, I don't know if that would be accurate because when did Amazon come out? So, <laughs> and I don't know if those numbers are accurate. These are just things that I've heard. I do know that there's 57,000 books on Amazon on leadership and 5,000 are on, on that. But it's interesting. Jesus is saying from day one, if we are really going to be followers of Christ, if we are going to be his disciples, the key is that we are to be serving. Serving one another. Taking time to really understand what does another person need to help them grow. Jesus' argument to the disciples when he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, is that you must deny yourself because the only way of gaining true life is to lose your life. That is, if you are turned in upon yourself and looking only for your own interests, only for your own advancement, only for your own reputation, you will lose real life because it's not found in those things. It can only be found in a loving, living, saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that relationship with Jesus turns us away from ourselves and points us towards others. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, you must learn to say with me, not my will, but your will be done. That's the first lesson in Christ's school of self-denial. Now ask yourself a question, and you don't have to respond. This isn't time for guilt. This is the no guilt zone. But how good are you at being able to say, not my will, but your will be done? And I was talking with somebody, and I said, that's real easy for me to say when everything is going the way I want it to go. 
But as soon as I'm challenged by a different way, not so easy. Not so easy. So it's not my will, God, but your will. Then we learn in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So not only does Jesus teach us that self-denial is at the heart of this passage, not only does he teach that those who seek their own interests first never find them, but he teaches that no temporal gain can compare to the loss of the soul. And again, I was sitting there talking to Johnny McGowan, Pastor McGowan, and he's talking about 16 siblings. And being with his grandfather, walking, and he said, my grandfather never, ever owned a car. His brothers had multiple cars. Um, and probably couldn't have a car. He needed a bus to be able to win the 16. But that he would, they just walked and gave up all kinds of temporal gain. But 16 grandchildren came to Christ. 16 grandchildren are serving God. And I asked him, I said, you know, what, what are they doing? He goes, oh, we have, you know, I preach. I'm, I'm, I'm the only ordained minister. But they have deacons and elders and all kinds of different people who are serving churches and serving their community. That just totally blew me away. And sometimes we get so caught up in the temporal and we lose sight of the eternal. And we have to evaluate ourselves what really is the most important and then be honest with our answer. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Um, so what does a merit have ease and comfort and popularity and beauty and prestige and success and power and influence if you don't have true life? You don't have true life. If you don't really surrender this all to God and allow the Holy Spirit to continue to transform you into his image. Nothing in life can add up to the value of an eternally lost soul. Um, nothing that this life offers can add up to that. And so to have somebody who's gained everything and has lost their eternity, that is why Christ came. Because I didn't come to be served. I came to do whatever was necessary to see people saved. That was the most important thing. Do the math. Temporal blessings, eternal condemnation. Which one are you going to go for? So Jesus' argument with his disciples is that those who do not deny themselves temporally deny themselves eternally. If you will not deny yourself now, you have by that very choice denied yourself for eternity. Uh, and again, selfishness causes the soul to contract. The more selfish you are, the, more small, the smaller your world becomes. And your heart just continues to contract. But love makes it expand. It enriches it. It fills it to overflowing with the assurance 
of peace and joy because of what Christ is doing. And when you know you're following Christ and you know you're being obedient to him, the reward of that brings a sense of joy for the true disciple that the Christaholic will never get by looking for another spiritual high or another happiness um, joy. It's that, it's that, that kind of love that could co- allow Jim Elliot to repeat the ancient quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And the hard part is to close our eyes to everything around us and say, those things don't matter as much as my relationship with Christ. And to be honest, whether or not that is true for us or not. And, and to do that honest evaluation. The question we all have to ask is, do I value my soul? Do I value my life eternity, for, for eternity that much? Do I really truly believe that the rewards that are worth having are not the rewards that I will get here, but are the ones that will come? And I think that's one of the hardest things that we have to wrestle with. We always think of our rewards here. What's the reward that I'm going to get now? If I do this, what will I get? If I do this, what will I get? Instead of saying, no, the ultimate rewards, the ones that are truly worth living for, are the ones that are going to take place for eternity. And then last... Yeah, this is, this is the, these are the verses that are a little bit confusing. Um, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now there's a ton of debate just about those verses, but let me clearly state right now that this these verse 27 does has nothing to do with works righteousness has nothing to do with earning your salvation has nothing to do with that and um next week we'll talk about how verse 28 is sort of explained by chapter 17 verses 1 through 13. um Yeah, I'm going to finish this as an introduction to next week. Next week, But what Calvin said and how you put salvation by grace and judgment by works, here's what he said. These two things agree excellently. For we are justified freely because God accepts us irrespective of our merits. And yet, according to his good pleasure... He repays our works with a reward which we do not deserve. Um, And so we deny ourselves for Christ in order to enjoy ourselves in Christ. Um, But I'll explain further because it's 1130. And I'll explain further what verse 27. Or if you are just so curious, you can sort of Get a concordance out, look it up on the internet, do a little study of your own, 
just on verses 27 and 28. You know, you've been real quiet this t- today. Yeah, just because I didn't show up for prayer this morning. That, okay, there you go. Uh, 630-272-2639. So... Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, Lord. And Lord, it just and this journey through through Matthew, Matthew uh, 15 and 16, where we just see more and more people wanting more and more from Christ. And yet Christ calling his people, his disciples, to understand what it truly means to follow him to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, the Messiah, the true Son of God. But not just to acknowledge that, but by acknowledging that, it requires, it demands a response. And that response means the denying of oneself in order to truly surrender oneself to Christ. It means bearing the cross that you bore. That that the, through the trials, through the things that we go through by claiming who we are in you, that there's going to be some tough times. But it's that obedience that will bring us a true sense of joy. And that following you really means following you. Not following our own agenda, but truly saying, your will, Lord, not mine. And those are, those are hard things to do. And there are days that we will do it well, and there are other days that we may fail miserably. But every day, we can come to you for grace. We can come to you for forgiveness. We can come to you for your love. We can come to you for your guidance. And we can come to you for your true acceptance. And Father, we praise you and we thank you for that. And we ask for your continued blessing on each of us, that we can go forth to be a blessing to others, is our prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.